I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and our guest, Isabel Jenkins, who's head of banking at PwC. We're also joined down the line by Laura Noonan from Dublin. And from the US, we're joined by Ben McClanahan, who's been talking to Oliver Ireland of Morrison and Furster about financial regulation. This week, we'll be talking about the Bank of England's stress test of the UK banking system, a change at the top of Swiss banking, where Boris Kaladi moves from Julius Baer to Pictet, and finally, in the US, a look at that financial regulatory outlook through that interview with Oliver Ireland from Morrison and Furster. First, though, to the UK stress tests. And Martin and Caroline, you've been holed up at the Bank of England since an ungodly hour this morning looking at the results of the PRA stress tests. In a word, Martin, they were good, right? They were better than last year when... Two banks failed parts of the test and had to take remedial action. This year, for the first time since the stress tests began in 2014, no bank has had to take remedial action. However, there were two banks that did fall below their minimum targets in the stress scenario, Royal Bank of Scotland and Barclays. But both of those banks have, since the start of this year, taken sufficient actions to boost their capital that they would now pass the tests. So therefore, they don't have to take any remedial action. So yes, it's better. But the overall fall in the capital of the banks as a result of the test was greater than last year. And the test itself was tougher with a bigger fall in world GDP and a greater fall in house prices in the UK in particular. And I think the key topic of conversation was it's all about Brexit. Mark Carney, the governor at the Bank of England, said that this test was at least equivalent to the worst case scenario for Brexit. So he's confident that the banks are in a strong enough position to withstand even the worst hard Brexit scenario. Let me bring Caroline in here because one of those Brexit preparation measures, I suppose, relates to the counter-cyclical buffer being increased. And that's quite a significant thing, isn't it, for the banks? Well, I'll just pick you up on one thing. The increase of the buffer was actually to guard against risks other than Brexit. So the stress test, as Martin's explained very well, meant that the Bank of England is now confident that UK banks could withstand the worst of Brexit. However, the big question, as Carney put it, is what happens if something else happens? So things that they're worried about, it's a typical financial stability report laundry list that we have, but things like consumer credit that they've been warning about for a long time, they're slightly concerned about asset valuations around the world, global debt, misconduct, all those kind of things that the Bank of England typically worries about. So we're going into Brexit. If there should be a hard Brexit, which the Bank of England thinks is unlikely still, what happens then if we have other headwinds that the bank has to face? And that's what this buffer is there to guard against. 
and it equates to a six billion top up in that's in right. capital, yeah. uh, taking the total to I think eleven point four billion that's in this buffer. When this buffer was first enacted, what six twelve months ago, it was a little bit of massaging, wasn't it? Because it was capital already was in the banks that got reallocated as counter cyclical money. Is this six billion actually new capital that needs to be injected? At the moment, the banks already have it essentially but they're holding it as voluntary capital so above their regulatory minimums so what they're doing is essentially locking it in as compulsory capital but the countercyclical buffer has been a little bit complicated ever since October 2015 when the bank first said it was minded to launch it and then obviously the Brexit referendum happened and they said okay well actually we were going to launch it but now we're not, we're going to go back to zero. And then it went back up to 0.5%. And now eventually it's going to be 1% by this time next year, which is the level that the bank sees as appropriate in what they call a standard risk environment. Okay. Well, let me bring in Isabel Jenkins now, who is head of banking at PwC. You've been studying all the pronouncements of the Bank of England this morning. Do you agree with the assessment of Martin and Caroline on the big picture stuff? And what else would you take away? So yes, on the whole, yes, I agree. It's a good outcome. As Martin said, it was the most difficult stress test so far and all the banks have passed. So that's a really good thing. I think one of the things that's really interesting about it, though, is it does highlight exactly the levels of capital that a bank needs to hold. And particularly then if you take that in the context of one of the exploratory scenarios. So there was the main scenario. There was also another exploratory scenario that looked at increased competition coupled with weak GDPR and growth rates and low interest rates. And obviously the government and the Competition and Markets Authority have been trying to increase competition competition in the banking sector. But you end up with two main themes. One, the amount of capital that any bank needs to hold. Then the implications of entry to the marketplace. And then three, actually what happens if you have non-banking players coming and really targeting some of the more profitable products. And is this going to be captured increasingly in stress tests in the future, do you think? Is this an area that needs to be got at more? Is a big risk? I think it's a risk. It will be interesting to see how it's built into future stress tests and how you can really model it out. Because I think what we've seen in the stress tests really focuses on some very particular financial implications and growth and interest rates. Competition, you know, maybe is harder to model, but you need to have some scenarios. But with the introduction of both open banking and then the payments regulation PSD2 in early 2018, which means that the large banking groups have to open up and share banking data with other providers and with the fintechs, that will make a change to the business models that we see in the marketplace. And that, of course, links into something I've spent my morning at an FT cyber risk conference where we were talking about some of the non-credit related risks, obviously, in banking, which don't get covered in this stress test, but are part of the regulators' concerns, certainly going forward. Caroline, you wanted to add something and then Martin. Yeah, I was just going to add that this exploratory scenario, which we've seen for the first time this year, the bank is going to be doing every other year. Now, for the last couple of years, they've put an end to the raise of the governor's eyebrows. They want to be far more transparent in the way that they communicate messages. 
However, what I would say is that the exploratory scenario, in a way, is a new form of that old eyebrow raising. It's asking banks to take a proper look at what their future strategy is and how they're going to cope with future challenges and ask, have you really thought about this? Perhaps you should go away and think a little bit harder. So in that respect, it very much could be seen akin to those old fireside chats. Martin? Yeah, just a final word. One of the important things about the stress test is what it means for dividends and the bank's ability to pay out excess capital to shareholders. And the reading of analysts and the market reaction is quite interesting because even though RBS, as we said, was one of those that fell below its minimum level in the test, it's been generating so much capital that analysts are quite positive now that it will restart dividends next year. Lloyd's, which was one of the best performers in the stress test, actually there's concern now that because it's got such little headroom, because there was such a big fall in its capital, it was still above the minimums, but the size of the fall in Lloyd's capital because of its expansion into consumer credit, which was one of the hardest hit areas in this stress test, leaves it with little amount of headroom. There's concern that Lloyd's ability to increase its dividend payments has been restricted. So its shares are the biggest faller among the big banks this morning, down more than 2.5%. That's a crucial point. Well, thanks all for that assessment of the stress test. Now let's move on to the second story of the day, looking at the surprise departure of Boris Kaladi as chief executive of Julius Baer and his move to the privately owned Pictet. This is one of the most colourful characters in Swiss banking. And we're joined now by Laura Noonan, who's been looking at this story. Laura, this is an odd move, isn't it, for a big CEO to go to a partnership where he's one of seven. What's behind it, do you think? Both sides are saying that it's really something Boris wanted to do for personal reasons that he just wanted to relocate from Zurich to Geneva and it was time to try something new and he's talked about how he wants to take on a fresh challenge and have something more entrepreneurial than being the CEO of a listed company because being the CEO of a large listed company is obviously a very prestigious role and a very powerful role but when you are a listed company you have a lot of restrictions in terms of what you can and can't do so it may just be that he wanted to be free of that. Obviously, he is going from being CEO to being one of seven, but we expect he's going to be paid enormously for it. Because of the way Pictet is structured as a partnership, all of the partners get a share in the profits. And in the good days, that can be extremely lucrative. So we expect he'll become a very rich man from this. One of the things I focused on in a column that I wrote was what this might mean for Credit Suisse, because at one point a few years ago, Boris Kaladi was seriously being talked about as a potential chief executive of Credit Suisse. If, for example, Julius Baer merged with the wealth business of Credit Suisse, arguably, this may be a slightly tenuous argument, this takes the pressure off Credit Suisse and Tijan TM in the sense that, you know, one of the obvious people to come in and take the helm there in an emergency is now out of the picture, if you like. Do you have any thoughts on that and also what he might do at Picte? I guess in terms of the Credit Suisse situation, if you look at what he's doing here, He's trying to get to a position where he's not so much in the public glare and where he's making a lot more money. If he had gone to Credit Suisse, it would have been effectively with the opposite move. He would have made less and he would have had a lot more scrutiny and a lot more restrictions. So if you think about what's actually motivating him, it's hard to imagine him having taken that role back when it came up or taking it in the future if, in fact, he wants to go in this other direction. In terms of what this means for Pictet, it's quite difficult to know because he is going to be one of seven. He's not going to be the managing partner. So as to whether they've brought him in with a mandate to do anything in particular, it's not clear at this point or whether it's just generally to bolster the business. I mean, one of the things people have been talking about is early on in his tenure as Julius Baer's CEO, he sold off the asset management unit 
PICDAY has a big asset management unit, so one of the questions people have been asking is, is she going to push for a similar strategy there? I mean, that's all obviously very early days. So it's not clear. I mean, he has a, a very different style. I mean, whether he will change the culture or whether the culture will change him, I think, remains to be seen. I and mean, he said yesterday there would be a learning curve. And I think that that learning curve may be on both sides. One to watch, definitely. Thank you very much for joining us, Laura. So let's now go across to Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been talking to Oliver Ireland from Morrison and Furster, the law firm. They've been talking about the outlook for US financial regulation in the light of Donald Trump's latest moves. So, Oliver, thank you very much for joining me. Um, the real talk these days amongst the financial regulatory community is uh, Senator Crapo's bill. Well, I, I shouldn't really call it a bill. It's an outline at the moment of where he wants to take financial regulation for the next uh, few years at least. Was there anything in that that really leapt out at you? Well, I wouldn't call it Senator Crapo's bill. For I call it a bipartisan bill mm-hmm. because he's got some Democratic support on right. this bill, and I think that's important to its future. The bill is, has things that range from, I think, fairly significant for a number of banks to some technical details in it. I didn't see anything where the issue addressed surprised me. Some of the, the approaches surprised me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that has caught a lot of attention is addressing the threshold for systemically important banks, mm-hmm. which was $50 billion of assets in the Dodd-Frank Act. And he now looks like he's moving to a exemption at $100 billion and then a qualified exemption from 100 to $250 billion and leaving it alone after that. I think I'm going to be very interesting to see the actual legislative text because I think it's important how much discretion the Federal Reserve has mm-hmm. to implement those provisions, not only within the 100 to 250 range, but also potentially above that range, so that we see broader, more tailored rules for larger banks or more tailored rules for larger banks, so they focus more on the individual business models and the risks of those business models. I think there's broad consensus that the $50 number was too low to begin with. You'll see some Democrats who well, object to that. Effectively, that some pretty small, <laughs> almost insignificant banks were, were, were sort of wrapped up in laws designed to rein in the likes of J.P. Morgan Chase or exactly. Wells Fargo. Uh, my own take on it was always there was a $50 billion number thrown out for as a measure of high-risk banks in the, the process of the Gramm-Leach-Bliley legislation. Remind us when that was. That was 1999, okay. and the $50 billion number came up a couple years before that. It never got put into the act. I always thought that that's where Dodd-Frank got the number from, mm-hmm. and so it was uh, an arbitrary number a decade before Dodd-Frank, and obviously the financial system had grown since then, and a more thoughtful approach is appropriate at this yeah. point. So the argument's been that... Um, any bank, uh, more than $50 billion doesn't really deserve to be given the same restrictions as, say, a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. I think that's right. I think, first of all, the, particularly with your examples, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have very different business models than most of the banks under $50 billion or under $100 billion. Mm-hmm. 
and are going to present different risks. And the supervisory process ought to be tailored to the risks presented rather than based on arbitrary distinctions. Let's talk about something else that's going on in the regulatory environment right now, which is a spat between the Department of Financial Services uh, in York and the Office of the Controller of the Currency, uh, affecting uh, the biggest Japanese bank by assets, uh, Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group, MUFG for short. MUFG wants to trade its uh, network of state licenses for a single federal license from the OCC, and it's um, got permission from the OCC, but the the DFS says, hold on a minute, (laughs) you're under an enforcement order, you can't do that. The OCC shouldn't have given the green light so quickly. What's your view on this, and where does Uh, it end? The U.S. has, for better or worse, historically run what we call a dual banking system. For domestic banks, you have a choice between state and federal charters, And for branches and agencies of foreign banks, you also have a choice between state and federal charters. Over the years, both banks and branches and agencies of foreign banks have shifted between those charters depending on how they perceive uh, the current supervisors, the current supervisory climate, Mm -hmm. uh, and so on. And so this is this is something of a spat, and it's been it's going on in the trailing an enforcement action yeah. by the DFS here in New York. I don't think that I don't think in concept this is unprecedented, and it's built into the dual banking system. If one of the regulators gets too tight and too aggressive. The regulated entity has the opportunity to switch regulators. But presumably the DFS in New York doesn't want to see too many of these uh, institutions like MUFG going the way of the uh, the OCC. Nobody wants to lose their constituency. Right. And And their income streams from supervisors. And in some cases it's tied to your income stream. And so I think if the DFS is concerned about that, they need to think about how they approach supervision of mm. branches and agencies Does it mean, banks do you think this. that they'll be less um, enforcement-minded? Because since 2011, when this thing was created, after the crisis, merging together the insurance and the banking supervisor, it has had a reputation for going after Deutsche Bank, BNP, Credit Suisse, all, all the big foreign branches uh, or foreign banks. Well, the, the, since the financial crisis in the U.S., all the regulators have had a reputation of going after banking organizations more aggressively than they have in the past. And the New York DFS has followed that model. I think at the federal level, that approach is being rethought, as we typically do after financial crises. The pendulum swings out and it starts to swing back. I think this will cause the DFS people to stop and think a bit. And with what results? Fewer enforcements? Or a shift in tone, perhaps? What you want out of enforcement is to have a viable banking system. Mm -hmm. It's really not so much an issue of punishment. If somebody breaks a law, there are sanctions for breaking the law. But a lot of the enforcement is designed to get people's attention and, in some cases, Arguably, uh, regulators go overboard and look for publicity out of the process. And I think you go and you look at it and say, is this the best way to go about achieving a viable 
foreign banking system in the state of New York? Mm-hmm. And that's the question they got to ask themselves. Right. Meantime, MFG seems more comfortable with the uh, degree of supervision and enforcement it's going to get from the, uh, the OCC. I what, think what, why do you think that is? I think they talk to the OCC. The OCC is an experienced bank regulator. They know how to regulate banks. They've been doing that for a long time. Is any bank regulator perfect? No. Mm-hmm. But they, they've been doing this, and obviously they've talked to the OCC, and they've come to some meeting of the minds about right. how to go forward. And the OCC, of course, um, soon to be run if the Senate confirms uh, by Joseph Otting, a former banker and close ally of uh, the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. Another agency that's been um, shifting at the very top is the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, where Richard Cordray has announced his resignation. What are the consequences for the banks of that? The CFPB has followed a supervisory process. They're more of a law enforcement agency, but they have followed a supervisory process that has been geared towards enforcement rather than rule writing. Mm -hmm. And that has resulted in a lot of enforcement actions and a difficulty on the financial services side from the companies of anticipating what's going to be enforced and who's going to get hit next. And it's made a compliance climate that's very difficult to operate in. And so I think a lot of people from the financial services side are going to look at that and draw a sigh of relief and look for who's going to take over from Mr. Cordray. Does it automatically imply a a different direction for the CFPB? I think it likely implies a different direction of the CFPB. I'd be surprised if it didn't imply a different direction of the CFPB. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they become lax or become ineffective. I just think that they can go about it in a different way that is actually perhaps more effective in the long run. Mm -hmm. Something else coming out of regulators that attracted a lot of attention all over the world was was a white paper from the Cleveland Fed. Uh, And the basic quick summary of it was that uh, the marketplace lenders that have all sprung up in the U.S. and uh, elsewhere over the past few years, promising to match needy borrowers with willing lenders, Uh, They're little different, apparently, in practices and um, in predatory practices than some of the payday um, storefront lenders that we see all all over the U.S. Did you have any thoughts on that? Well, I haven't had time to study the Cleveland paper. There are 12 reserve banks. They all have their own economic staff, Mm -hmm. and the staff likes to write articles. And you find a lot of articles in Federal Reserve Bank journals on a lot of issues. This is a timely issue, and I think the article probably got a lot of attention, and I think it's probably designed to get a lot of attention. The question of access to credit and what is a predatory loan and what are the consequences of cutting off access to those kinds of loans Mm -hmm. for the people that think they need them is a difficult question. And I'm not surprised to see somebody at the Cleveland Fed have a view on that. I'd want to look at the paper to see exactly what they think the problem is and whether it's something that is inherent in the nature of the credit. Right. You're, you're lending to people that are that need money, mm-hmm. can't get money from other sources, are higher risk, so the rates are going to be higher to reflect that risk, or whether they're focusing on particular practices mm-hmm that some lenders are using that are inappropriate or unfair. 
if that's the case, if the latter is the case, I would expect either the states, if these are state-licensed lenders, or if they're operating through bank partnerships, the bank supervisors who look at the banks that are originating the loans to step in and look at those practices. Mm -hmm. But some of what their concern is often about in these areas is simply a rate that makes it economic to give credit to that population. So if you're serving that population <clears throat> through whatever means, you are going to charge a high interest rate because your losses will be high. Exactly. Oliver Allen, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline and Isabel Jenkins of PwC here in the studio. Also, Laura down the line in Dublin and Ben and Oliver Ireland in New York. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Lauren Leatherby. Until next week, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.